This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. If you're a loser, tune in and you'll be a winner. It's the Moranalytics Podcast. Talking Buffalo sports, Yankees, WWE, 80s music, and pop culture. And now, here's your host, Patrick Moran. What's up, winners? Welcome to the Moranalytics Podcast. Today is Monday, May 28th, 2018. I am Patrick Moran a.k.a. self-proclaimed podcaster that is sports stars or sports media stars, something like that. Coming up on today's show, I have another great guest. I'll be joined by Sports Illustrated senior writer and also from the MMQB, Jenny Fuentes joins the show. We talk about how someone who went to college majoring in biochemistry and molecular biology ends up becoming a big-time sports journalist. Which, by the way, I could barely even say molecular, molecular biology, let alone major in it in college. That's crazy. We talk about her career, which began in Newark with the Newark Star-Ledger and Branch in the Sports Illustrated, and what Peter King, who handpicked her for the MMQB job, has meant to her in recent years. Of course, Peter King's leaving Sports Illustrated after 29 years. I'm sure it's a tough pill for a lot of them to swallow there, including Jenny. And she opens up about that as well. We talk about all that and much more. Jenny's amazing. She's amazing, talented, funny, personable, you name it, and she's that. I'll get to that interview with her in a minute. Before that, though, I got a few quick things that I want to hit on. I need to start with an apology of sorts to... Richie Incognito, I've been very, very, very hard on him on this podcast and over the last handful of weeks, I didn't understand what was going on with him, but I kind of got a pretty good clue now. I think everyone does now. You know, going back the last couple months, it started when he took a pay cut and then not long after that, he fired his agent on Twitter publicly, which I thought was awful. And he gives an interview with the Buffalo News retires, gives an interview with the Buffalo News, says that his liver and kidneys are shutting down on him and he can't take the stress, it's killing him. Then he decides he doesn't want to retire anymore and he starts kind of, actually not kind of, straight up trolling the Buffalo Bills on Twitter, getting them to release him, which over this past week, they finally did. They had enough. They weren't going to deal with this going forward. And now he's a free agent. He can sign anywhere he wants. But we all know what happened this past week with the TMZ report. I'm not going to rehash the details. Don't need to. You already know. But this is a man who needs help. He needs help. He's lost his way again. I feel bad for being as hard on him as I was. I mean, obviously, I didn't know the extent of what was going on with him. But it's pretty clear now that the dude needs help. And I really, truly hope he gets it. A little concerned because right now he's not with the team. So I hope the league steps in and does whatever it is that they got to do to make sure that this man gets the help that he needs. So that's one thing. Another thing too, I need to send an apology to the hockey fans in Tampa. This past week on Twitter on Thursday, I was really hard on them. I live near Tampa now. I live in Florida, about maybe 35, 40 minutes outside of Tampa. I'm around the area all the time. I just don't think the hockey fans... Are that are that passionate? I just don't. I'm sorry, but I, you know, I, I kind of went overboard with a tweet. I said this on Thursday, referring to the Buffalo Sabers. I said when the Sabers were great, you couldn't walk down the street without seeing Sabers gear and stuff everywhere. Down here near Tampa, the team's one game away from the Cup, and I wouldn't know if tonight was Game Seven 
or November Thursday at a lot of places. That was an exaggeration. It was. I will say this. I mean, who knows if the Sabres are ever going to be relevant again. But when the Sabres are relevant and they're a playoff team, there's no comparison. Fans in Buffalo, way more fevered. It's a completely different atmosphere than down here in Florida. It's just not the same. And I don't even think it's close either. But again, I didn't need to be that harsh on Tampa hockey fans. It is a good base. It is. They get into it. They sell out that Amelie Arena all the time. There's party in the plaza events going on. There are certain places where going to Tampa and watching a hockey game is a cool thing to do. There is. So again, I, I exaggerated. And for that, I'm sorry. And here's another thing too about Florida that's not like Buffalo or, or most NHL cities. It's a transplant state. So there's a lot of fans down here that are grew up where teams, you know, they grew up in cities where there were other teams. I've been to a couple Sabres games at the Amelie Arena. And it's at least 30% Buffalo fans there. Ditto when Boston comes to town. When, when the Bruins come to town, there's a ton of Bruins fans and a lot of other teams like that. But that's not the fans of Tampa who grew up and have been around Tampa. It's not their fault. So the fans are good. They're not Buffalo good, but they are good. And I went a little overboard on that. So my bad, Tampa. Here's another thing. And this really sucks. My hometown paper, the Buffalo News, Two of the best writers there got let go over this past week or accepted buyouts, whatever you want to call it. One way or the other, they're gone. Talking about John Vogel, who covered the Sabres for the past 16 years. And of course, columnist Bucky Gleason, who's been at that paper for around 20. They both accepted buyouts and they're both going to be gone. I'm not sure when, but I know it's coming soon. That shit just sucks, man. It sucks. Last thing I want to hit on, was thanking Adam Schefter for coming on and doing the podcast last Thursday. It was a big moment. It was the best moment of this podcast by far so far for obvious reasons. Mile high numbers and downloads. It doesn't get much bigger than Adam Schefter. You know, I'm trying to build this podcast here brick by brick. And I've had really good guests on guys like Richard Deitch and Ross Tucker, Adam Kaplan, Mike Vaccaro. All kinds of great guests. You know, Mike Harrington from the Buffalo News, Tim Graham. I could go on and on. So it was a big deal for me. And of course, I got so many new listeners to go along with the guys who've been listening from day one. Can't thank you guys enough. It was a great moment and I'm very grateful for that. Anyway, all right. Enough about my thoughts. Here's my interview with Jenny Frentis from Sports Illustrated and MMQB. Okay, my guest today is a senior writer for Sports Illustrated and also the MMQB. Before that, she spent six years honing her craft at the Newark Star-Ledger. I'm talking about one of my favorite sports writers out there today, Jenny Frentis. How are you doing, Jenny? I'm great. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. It's a great thrill to have you here. Let me, let me start here. Now, you grew up around State College in PA, correct? I did. I did. Yeah. I, um, my parents worked at the university. They both taught in the chemical engineering department. So I grew up about five minutes from campus was, was born right off campus. Um, so yeah, lived there until I moved to New York. So the first 21 years of my life, I spent, uh, uh, basically on the Penn state campus. (laughs) So it was pretty easy to grow up being a Penn state fan then. Yeah. I mean, you know, watch a lot of football with my dad. He had season tickets. You know, when I went to college, I had season tickets and then ended up covering the football team for the Daily Collegian. So, um, yeah, I mean, we didn't really, people always say like, what's your pro sports team? I didn't really grow up with a pro sports team. I, I grew up, you know, just watching Penn State. We watched a lot of different sports. We used to go to a lot of women's basketball games. Um, they had like a Lady Lions Kids Club uh, that we used to go to. So lots of sports on the on the Penn State campus. So you go to Penn State for college. I mean, obviously, but you major in biochemistry and molecular biology. I mean, listen, I'm sure you've been asked this before. I have to ask it now. How does someone who majors in that end up becoming, you know, a big time sports journalist? 
Yeah, it's a total 180. You know, it's funny. I just did earlier this week, I went to my high school. They had a career day panel. Um, they asked me to come back and it was like an arts and humanities career day panel. So my mom and I were joking, like we never would have thought, you know, 15 years ago, I would have been on an arts and humanities career panel. Um <laughs> But yeah, I mean, my whole family is, is, uh, they're scientists or engineers. Both of my parents are chemical engineers. My sister majored in biochemistry also, and she's currently wow. working as, as a scientist for, uh, for the USDA. So, you know, that was always where our interest was. They did a lot of science related activities in high school. Um, and you know, I, I enjoyed science. I, you know, so I, um, I majored in that. I had a research project in the, um, sort of biogeochemistry field you know we one summer we went on a, uh, a a research cruise in the pacific and we took samples of the ocean floor and kind of cultured the bacteria that were growing there and uh so i, I had a, i very much had an interest in that area but when i was at penn state i started writing for the daily collegian just as a fun activity i remember i you know you had to put down your three preferences of staff to be on and i knew that if i put down science and health as one of my choices they would have me work in science and health because they probably didn't have a lot of science majors. It was mainly journalism majors. So I didn't even put that down as an option. I really wanted to work for the sports staff. Um, and that's kind of how I really fell in love with journalism. You know, I, the first team I covered as a beat was women's volleyball and the women's volleyball coach there is, is a legend. They've won, you know, um, a bunch of national championships. I don't know the exact number because every year it seems like they're contending for another one, but Russ Rose, we were, we were sitting, I was interviewing him once and he said, you, you, it seems like you really like this. Like, he's like, do you really want to be in a lab the rest of your life? And that kind of, you know, kind of stuck in my head. And I started thinking, got the wheels turning a little bit. And then ultimately that kind of set me on the course to uh, a career in journalism. Yeah. It's, it's kind of funny. So essentially it was a not planned event of your life. You know what I mean? You didn't go to Penn state thinking I'm going to become a sports journalist. It was something that wasn't planned which is, you know, I just had Adam Schefter on the last episode and his, his whole life, his whole career, he kept talking about, you know, it was a series of unplanned events. Just things worked out that way. Obviously, they worked out for the best and obviously it worked out for the best for you as well. I think that's what no one tells you when you're, you know, a high schooler is that there are going to be so many unplanned events, right? And so if I had never worked, written for the newspaper just as a side activity, I don't know that I would have unlocked that passion that I had for for writing and for telling stories. Um, and I think, you know, you, it, it's hard to make a choice when you're 18. It's hard to, you know, know exactly what career is going to suit you best. You pick something you're interested in to major in, but I think it's okay if you have shifting interests to follow those. And then the other thing I feel like no one knows when you enter the, when you're 21 entering the job market is just how much your job is going to shift. Even if you stick in one field, there's going to be so many changes. I mean, I, I can't describe how different my job is today than when I first started with the advent of social media and how immediate everything is, the 24-7 news cycle. So even within your industry, there's a lot of changes. So I feel like the most important thing that you can do is sort of be nimble, be open to new directions, new ideas, you know, um, new endeavors within your career or in a new direction. So after you graduate from Penn State, you end up attending the Columbia Journalism Grad School. Was it there that you decided that not only did you want to cover sports, but football specifically, or was that already planted into your mind? Well, football was always, you know, the sport that I enjoyed covering the most, just kind of having grown up at Penn State, obviously, that was the biggest sport in town. You know, it was the biggest sport to cover at the Daily Collegiate at Penn State. So that was always my interest. But I also was aware of the fact that, you know, it sort of, it's hard to get jobs in, in, in sports journalism, right? There aren't unlimited jobs. There aren't unlimited opportunities. So I was, you know, willing to do whatever I needed to. So I got to the Star Ledgers, and summer intern at first, then a year-long intern. And really, you're doing whatever assignments come your way. You're totally a GA reporter. You're covering, you know, drag racing and beach volleyball. You're like the third or fourth sidebar person at like a Yankees game. You know, you're doing whatever you need to do. But I'm grateful for that experience because... It really, you know, when you're covering a lot of different sports, you, you're dropped into a situation that you probably are not an expert in. And that's a really good, you know, 
ability to do that is, is a good confidence builder, right? Because even in my current job, there's going to be times where I, you know, I'm used to covering football in the NFL, but there's times when you're dropped into a situation where you don't know anybody, you don't really have any relationships and you have to navigate that. So I just did a bunch of everything that first year. The Giants went to the Super Bowl. Um, 2007 season. And I was like the party scene blogger, you know, of course the 23 year old girl is sent <laughs> right. on that assignment, yeah. but I took it seriously because I was like, you know what? I want to give readers at home. The giants hadn't been to the super bowl right in a while. Um, and so this was my chance to show readers at home what the scene was like. And we had a blog for super bowl 42 party scene. And, um, you know, so I covered all kinds of events around town and then after that, I had an opportunity to be the backup on the Giants beat just from taking that assignment seriously. You know, I could have just blown it off and done whatever, but I, I wanted to do a good job. And I think that helped me have the opportunity to be the, the number two on the Giants beat. And that's really how I got into covering the NFL. It was, it was you know, I appreciate the, the one of the sports editors at the time, Drew Van Esselstyn and, and Mike Garofolo, who's now at NFL Network. He was a legion Giants beat writer. And they really, um, you know, stood on the table for me to get the opportunity, which I am always grateful for them. So going to the Super Bowl in 2008, even if you didn't cover, you know, what was in your heart, what you wanted to do, you did a good job doing what you did. And it sounds like that kind of became a turning point for you in your career. Yeah. I mean, having the chance to, you know, be on an NFL beat as the backup was a great way to learn how to cover it. I mean, I was so fortunate to learn from Mike Garofolo because he owned that beat. Like he had so many sources, a story would come up and it was amazing how he was in position to cover it from whatever angle, whether it was agents, people in the organization, players, he just had contacts all over the place. So being able to learn on a day-to-day -day basis and see how someone develop sources, how they work stories, you know, that was a really valuable training ground for me. Um, so I was his backup for two years and then um, a job covering the Jets opened up and then I covered the Jets for two seasons. Um, and then I went, came back to the Giants as, as a lead beat writer. So, you know, for me, I wouldn't trade the beat experience for anything because I think being able to cover an organization and on a day-to-day -day basis and really dive in, um, and sort of lay the foundation too for covering the NFL. Um, I still miss, you know, being yeah. around a team and being so up close to one team and being an expert on everything that goes on. Like if something happens with that team, you're going to be on top of it. Right. Whereas being a national writer, sometimes you just kind of don't know what the right direction to go in. Um, so I, I love the beat experience, you know, and I, a lot of the connections I made then are, are, are still ones I, I count on today. So you started covering the Jets in 2010. They went to the AFC Championship that year, correct? Yeah, that was the second year that they went. So uh, it was, you know, the peak of the Rex Ryan Sanchez era. There was I was going to ask you about Rex. Yeah. Basically, you know, everything seemed possible. It was a really fun team to cover. I mean, you know, it was so different because going into a Giants practice on Wednesday, you always had to have a plan for what you were going to write. Like, how, you know, some kind of matchup for that week's game mm -hmm. or like some player to highlight. And then on the Jets beat, you'd come in with a plan and then Rex would say something and you'd have to adjust everything, right? Uh, I, so saw it for, I saw it for two totally, years in Buffalo, yep. <laughs> right, so it was two totally different experiences. But listen, I had a lot of fun. Rex was great from our perspective. He was helpful. He was engaging. We had the chance to tell a lot of really interesting stories um, and, and also learn a lot about, you know, football. I mean, Rex and his staff were so fantastic about teaching the media, whatever they wanted to know about X's and O's and how things were working. And that to me was a very valuable education. I know a lot of staffs are closed off, but I really give them credit for being so open. If you had a question, they would answer it. They wanted you to be informed. Um, and I think that was good for the assistant coaches. You know, um, it got them out there a little bit more too. So I, that was something I really appreciated. What was it like covering just the New York beat in general? I mean, it seems like New York City you know, the Giants, the Jets, also, I mean, you didn't cover them, but like, you know, the Yankees, Mets, stuff like that. It just seems like New York is another animal compared to other cities. You know, a lot of cities, they got one, two newspapers, a couple beat guys and that's it. But like New York, it's like, there's so many, it's like a completely different animal. It's, it's so true. The competition on those beats is so intense and there's a, people on both of the beats, the Jets and the Giants who have covered the team for more than 20 years. And so going into it, you know, it's a big challenge. You're, you're trying to basically start from scratch 
And there's so many entities there on a daily basis. You know, it, it, it's true. You go to some other cities and there might be two or three people, right? right? You might think it's, you know, you might think you have a, on the New York beat, you might think you have a lead on a story and it turns out someone else is working on it. I cannot tell you how many times you had a rush to publish you know, a blog entry at that time or publish a tweet because you knew someone was hot in your heels and maybe you would beat them by like a single minute. I mean, it was really, the competition was fierce and it wasn't always nice. You know, that was hard as, you know, I was young. I didn't have a ton of experience. I was fortunate in that I had great bosses and coworkers, but it got nasty at times. Um, And so that was a real introduction to, you know, the ups and downs of the business. That was what I was going to ask you next. I like to, I love asking sports writers this question. You know, when you cover a team or, or a sport over time, you develop relationships and I'm sure sometimes friendships with some of the competing newspapers or websites, TV stations, radio, whatever. You know, on one hand, these men and women become your friends, but on the other, you know, you kind of want to kick their ass when it comes to getting that scoop or writing the best story. Is it ever like a, a tricky line to balance between, you know, friends and competition? Yeah, it's a great point because you end up spending way more time with the people that cover your beat for other outlets than you do with your actual coworkers, mm-hmm. right? So like if I'm covering the Jets and Mike is covering the Giants, you almost never cross paths except like what the Giants Jets preseason game and then like the combine. I mean, you're basically with people from other outlets. And I would say, you know, we definitely developed a camaraderie in the sense you're around each other so much. There are times when like, you know, such and such star player is talking. He's only going to do a group interview. It's 15 minutes long and you'd split up the tape and transcribe it afterward because everyone had the same stuff. But underlying that all is this fierce competitiveness. So I think most people you're able to balance that, right? You're never going to give away what story you're working on. You're never going to give away who your sources are, but you know, it's, you can develop a camaraderie with the people that you're seeing every day. And it's nice to have that because you're around them so much. There's also other relationships where the competition really turns nasty and, you know, people will call other people that this happens on every beat. It certainly happened on my, in my experience, you have people calling your sources and telling them not to talk to you or to only talk to them. Um, and that kind of thing. I never did that, but other people did do that. And it's really disheartening to learn about it later and say such and such called me and was bad nothing you behind your back. And it's like, you have to trust that your relationship with your source is strong enough that it's going to rise someone saying bad stuff about you. And that's not, you know, that's not always the case. You don't, people don't, you know, you're getting to know people. You're new, right? You're definitely pointing out the ugliness. You know, like I said, a lot of aspiring sports writers out there, you know, guys who want to cover a beat, they only think of the positive things. You know what I mean? So I like when someone like you comes on and you know, you point out that it's not all roses and that that competition, indeed, it could get very ugly out there at times. But the competition in another sense is really good because it really motivates you. It really drives you. You know, the fear of getting beat when you're covering a, you know, a team every day and you're seeing the people that might be beating you, like that fear is, is a great motivator, yeah. you know, and it, 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 it pushes you to, you know, go one step further, make an extra call, try. And when you, when you get that, when you get a scoop or you have a story, no one else has it's a fantastic feeling. So in 2006, after six years um, at the ledger, you joined sports illustrated and your name to the Monday morning quarterback writing team, uh, a Peter King spinoff from SI Peter King. I mean, obviously one of the most famous sports writers who's ever lived. He basically handpicks you. How did that process go? Well, you know, Peter, when he went out to start the MMQB, you know, one thing that I really appreciate in retrospect, and I think this should really be part of his legacy at SI, he made an effort to put together a diverse team. Um, and, you know, he wanted to have racial diversity. He wanted to have gender diversity. And I really respect that. And I remember when he he told me that after I was hired, it never came up in the hiring process. He told me that later. And, you know, you could take it one of two ways. One is, did he hire you because you're a woman? Uh, But that's not what he meant. He meant that whenever he had the chance to create his own staff, he wanted to bring in people from different perspectives because Mm -hmm. he felt like it would make the team better. Um, And I, I think it's really meaningful. I think it's made an impact at Sports Illustrated. I think it's made an impact in our industry. Um, you know, our industry is pretty homogenous. And so I think to have different perspectives and different voices and to have someone like Peter King make a commitment to doing that, I think is, is really meaningful. 
Um, and in my case, I, you know, I got a little lucky too, because he was living in Montclair, New Jersey at the time. And so he was a star ledger subscriber and we had been in touch, you know, about some stories I'd written on the jets or, you know, I'd asked him some questions about, um, stories that he did. I remember his Peyton Manning free agency story and Michael Vick story. So we had been in touch a little bit, but, um, definitely the fact that he was a star ledger subscriber sort of guaranteed that he would at least know who I was, um, and, but I, I was really proud to be part of his team and, and proud to be part of his staff. And he always says, you know, thanks for like trusting me and making this leap. And we always are saying, we always say, no, Peter wasn't like, it wasn't a leap of faith. Like it was the greatest opportunity of our careers, you know? Well, sure. And you say, you know, got a little lucky and maybe in some regards, cause he got to see it, he did, but you know what? You might be selling yourself a little bit short too, because there's other writers that he read every day too. And he picked you. You know what I mean? So maybe you're selling, <laughs> selling yourself just a little bit short there. Well, thanks. No, I, I appreciate it. I, um, I'm, I'm just, he's been such a great mentor and an advocate for all of us. You know, there are times when he could Bigfoot people for assignments. He never did that. Um, he was so involved with all of the details from the beginning Anytime you ever had a question on a story, he was around. I mean, I, once I sent him a story, a transcript, you know, I was really struggling. I was doing a story on Bill Belichick and Nick Saban's coaching friendship. Um, I thought he was the person that would really have some good insight. And I was really struggling. And so I called him one day and I, I just said, I'm kind of in this quagmire. I don't know how to put this together. And he asked me to send him the transcripts of the interviews with both of them. Some like 8,000 words. Wow. He read the transcripts, sent me back um, suggestions. It was like a, you know, a doctor writing a prescription. If I were you, this is what I would do. And I followed that plan. And, you know, I don't, I didn't always ask him for help. He was like enough on his plate, but there were times when I really needed someone like him and he never, you know, gave us the short shrift. It was always, he treated our questions with the same care that he would treat his own. And that really meant a lot. What are your thoughts on Peter King leaving SI now after 29 years? I mean, there's no denying that it's a huge loss. It's going to be a, a weird period of transition. It's going to be weird on Monday mornings for his column to be somewhere else and for Sports Illustrated to be filling that hole with something else, right? Right. So that is going to be different. I mean, that being said, you know, what Peter has done over the last five years is create a really strong staff. There's so many good, talented writers um, a lot of the writers are on staff are young, but that's good. I think Peter hired younger writers in part too, because, you know, he knew that everyone would be hungry and wanting to prove themselves and have a lot of energy. And so, you know, what the staff might lack in experience, I think they more than make up for in determination and drive and uh, uh, ability to think differently that Peter really cultivated in us. So, um, you know, I, I personally was sad. I mean, when he, when he, when he, you know, shared the news, I, I, I cried. I mean, that's just yeah. a normal response, right? I mean, he's someone who's been sure. an advocate for you. It's like the person who drafted you is sure. leaving, right? I mean, that is, you know, that's a big change. He's an yeah, important part of your exactly. life, for sure. <laughs> exactly. How big of an adjustment was it for you personally, you know, going from being a team beat writer who covered the Jets and Giants to becoming a national writer? Like for you personally, was it a difficult adjustment? It's still an adjustment, to be honest. And maybe, you know, maybe I shouldn't say that, but it's true. You know, covering a team, it was so clear what your day-to-day responsibilities should be. You knew exactly what you needed to do. You needed to write whatever was going on with the team and find out as much information as possible and try to be ahead of the curve on your beat, you know? So I knew exactly what every day was going to be. Now, you know, there are certainly... I enjoy my current job. I'm glad that I made the switch, but there's a little bit more uncertainty. Like, how do you know what the best story is going to be? You know, are you all, are you in the right place? Like, um, are you focusing on the right, because there's so many things to focus on. Someone told me that kind of being a national writer, um, Alex Marvez told me this when I first started, he said, um, it's like being on a waterbed and you're just kind of like, you know, moving around and you're not quite quite sure what direction to go. And like, you feel like, you know, you know, there's just so many and that that kind of uncertainty and that, you know, you know, you're not, not exactly sure where the right way to go is. And I think it's kind of, I think that was a really good analogy. I'm not describing it well, but I think you get the point. Absolutely. It's a great one. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, 
I enjoy the ability to go tell a story um, anywhere in the country. And on, and I appreciate the opportunity to kind of get away from the day-to-day minutia of the transactions and who's on the practice field and to, to dive into stories a little bit more. Um, but I do miss sometimes, you know, like I said, just being an expert on one team and being re- really dug into the, to one team and feeling like you're going to be ahead of the curve and knowing what's going on there. We're going to talk about a couple of your stories in a few minutes. Let me ask you this. You've become one of the top sports writers in the game over the past few years, man or woman. Let's just say that. I don't care what it is, man or woman, period. I'm confident in general you get treated fairly, but I'm sure you've also had your difficulties, you know, working in an industry that traditionally has been dominated by males. Does it ever feel like women unfairly have more to prove in journalism industry, especially when it comes, you know, to the higher end jobs that come up in the business? Absolutely. I always say that the biggest difference between being a female sports writer and a male sports writer is that if you're a female sports writer, there's this burden of proof. Any situation that you go into, you always feel like you have to prove that you know what you're doing, that you should be there. Um, and for, I feel like men more often get the benefit of the doubt. You know, there's so many times when you go into a situation, you could tell that someone's talking down to you, um, you know, in terms of they'll describe a football play and they'll, you know, in, in very basic terms. And you really want them to be to describe it to you like they would any other reporter. Right. Um, and, you know, I think the older I get, the more that lessens, you know, you, you because you're around people not for the first time as often anymore. They at least know who you are and they may have read some of your stories. Um, you know, as you build a reputation, that helps a little bit, I think. But I just, you know, it, it still comes up. And, you know, I, I guess I wish I knew that when I was 22. You know, I wish I knew that it was going to be a little bit different and not feel bad about it. It's not, it's not your fault. Um, right. I just remember, you know, there'd be bumps in the roads and I would think, you know, is, is someone responding to me differently because of that? And, and the reality is, if you think they are, they probably are. Um, but once you recognize that that's going to be a possibility, you, you know, you you are better at handling it, um, you know. And I think, um, I just think it's important to be open about experiences. You know, I've certainly had people say to me, like one player once said, you're such a woman when it comes to this. And when I asked a question and, you know, I, I didn't respond the right way right away. I didn't know what to say. I was kind of speechless. So I yeah. went back to him the next day and I said, you know what, that's really, that's not okay to say that. I had a legitimate question and you should have answered it. And, and, you know, our relationship was fine there moving forward, but, um, the burden of proof is different. And I think, you know, to get to certain roles, absolutely. You know, there, there, women are still pigeonholed into certain spots, whether it be in broadcasts or in print. Um, and I would like to see that change. And I think one big reason why it hasn't changed is there aren't that many women in hiring positions. And so when you have someone like Peter King, who is willing to think differently when it comes to hiring, that's why I mentioned it earlier as being so impactful. And I'm really glad that you talked in this type of, of light about Peter King, because we all know him as a great sports writer, you know, a long time, one of the best ever, but it's refreshing. And it's nice to hear you reveal a personal side and how much he's meant to not just to you, to a lot of people when it comes to diversity. That's something that a lot of people probably don't know. I know. I, and I, I, I feel like it's important. You know, I, I hope that that's an important part of his legacy at Sports Illustrated. I know that he's really tried to make a difference in that regard. Um, and I know that for those of us who've been on the receiving end of it, uh, you know, it's so appreciated. I, I think, you know, your actions say a lot. And he had, he said, when I was going to be in a hiring position, this is what I was going to do. And he followed through on it. If there is one, and maybe you've already mentioned it already, what do you think's been the hardest moment of your career to date? Well, that's a good question. The hardest moment. Wow. I mean, I guess, well, I guess I would say the hardest thing was probably deciding to abandon science and go into journalism. It was, you know, the path of most resistance right. for me. You know, I was, you know, three quarters of the way through a science degree you know, everyone else in my family, like I said, they were engineers or scientists. They all had their PhDs. That was just kind of assumed it was the direction. And it was a bit of a gamble because I had not spent my summers interning at newspapers. I was working in a science lab. So I really had, I didn't have the experience that other peers had. Um, And I, 
you know, if it didn't work out, you know, I, I, I would have wasted time, money. I went to grad school for journalism. So I think that was the hardest part for me, even though I felt so strongly that this was what I wanted to do. I also knew nothing about navigating a career path in this industry. Um, I didn't really know what was possible, what, what I should be doing. Um, so, you know, there was just a lot of unknown. What were your parents, what was their attitude when you told them that this is what you want to do? What was their reaction to it? Well, they were surprised, you know, because we had always planned on science, right? You know, I did science Olympiad in high school. We did science bowl, ocean bowl, like quiz contests that relate to science and oceanography. Like I was like singularly focused on that. And so I had the same major as my sister. She was older, you know, she was in grad school, um, for molecular biology, you know, so for them, I think it was a surprise because I think they just thought, you know, I was doing the newspaper for fun, which I was at the beginning, but then it sort of developed into something else. Um, but you know, they came around, I mean, listen, they paid for my grad school for journalism. Um, they read every article, you know, my mom prints them out or they read them on her iPad. Like, they, you know, my mom finds typos. If I misspell a word, she'll just she'll text me, hi, like you're missing a letter in like paragraph 48, which is pretty remarkable. So they could not be more supportive. Um, I just think it was, you know, it was a big change. It, it kind of came out of nowhere because I had always been so focused on science. Well, your gamble definitely paid off. Let me ask you this. Who's the toughest athlete that you've ever had to deal with? And I'm not saying necessarily the biggest jerk or the worst human being. I mean, just saying the most difficult. Difficult. Yeah. Well, there were some difficult personalities um, on the Jets beat. I will say that Um, players that didn't talk very often, um, you know, uh, that weren't particularly pleasant to deal with. I mean, that is always a challenge. I think perhaps the toughest would be some of the athletes that are overcovered and you have an assignment to write something different and interesting on them. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, I, I, two years ago I had an assignment to, to write a Tom Brady story and I thought, well, what am I going to write? I mean, I, what could I, you know, you're not going to get good access. I mean, especially not during the season. Um, I'd had no pre-existing relationship. Um, and so I ended up writing about how Belichick is harder on Brady than anyone else, which sets the tone for the team. And I talked to all these people around them. I, uh, you know, I got stories from, you know, probably 30 some teammates of Brady through the years. Um, and I ended up really, I asked him two questions in, in the locker room after um, the opening, their opening round playoff game. I guess it would have been the divisional round. So that was a case where you have an assignment on someone that you know you're not going to get anything from them specifically, and you kind of have to make it work. Um, so I guess maybe that falls into that category. As a side note, it's sort of an interesting story now because basically the whole point of the story was that the whole Patriots way was built around the fact that Belichick could treat Brady harder than everyone else. And that he never made exceptions for him as despite the fact that he was the star quarterback, which kind of puts in what's going on now in in an interesting context. Yeah, definitely. I want to talk, I want to hit on a couple of the stories that you've written. One of them you co-wrote along with Robert Klemko was called the great Super Bowl Jersey caper for sports illustrated which awful announcing named as one of the 20 best pieces of sports writing for 2017. How does it feel to get that type of recognition for the work that you put into a story like that? I mean, you, know, only, you so only picked 20 fun. pieces. Yeah, no, I, and I appreciated that. I mean, uh, anytime anyone kind of points people to your work, that's really, that means a lot, right? Because sometimes you write stuff and you have no idea if people are going to read it. Right. Um, I would say that one was a really fun one to work on. Robert, was a tremendous teammate. I have to give a shout out to our editor, Gary Gramling, because he really shepherded the whole process and kind of worked through an outline with us. Um, but it was really fun to report. Now, Robert was the one who went to Mexico. He saw the videos and the images of the Jersey raid when they went to pick it up. So he got a lot of really interesting details. And it was, we had, you know, um, we downloaded WhatsApp so that we could communicate while he was in Mexico. And, you know, he was going to this guy's house and waiting outside and like sending updates. So it was a lot of fun. Um, and then I was kind of reporting from this side on 
you know, uh, what was going on with the, the U.S. you know response, their their law enforcement, um, and the NFL security, and kind of their process of weeding through who might have been the the, the culprit here. Um, but what a strange story, right? Like yeah. what a like bizarre. And I remember one detail that was really funny is that. The authorities in Mexico could not believe that a worn jersey was so valuable. They thought this is grass stained and smelly, like what in the world? And it really put into context how bizarre the American memorabilia market is and that these game used items carry such value. And it's some dude's sweaty shirt, right? Like, <laughs> so it's, I remember we, we chuckled about that detail a lot because that's essentially what they said. They're like, this is a sweaty shirt. <laughs> So you traveled to Puerto Rico like over just this past week or so to do a story on Hurricane Maria eight months after it happened. Five New York Giant players were down there helping. Uh, Landon Collins, Nate Soldier, Michael Thomas, Teddy Williams, Eli Apple. What was that experience like? And by the way, if you're listening to this and you haven't read it yet, do it. What was that experience like? Yeah, you know, it was really interesting and eye-opening uh, for me. You know, I was really glad to have the chance to go to write the story and kind of sh- share what they were seeing. But just, just from my perspective, too, being able to, to you know, meet people in Puerto Rico who sort of felt forgotten and hear their experiences and what was still going on in Puerto Rico um, was really a perspective changer, uh, for me too, just as a person. So, um, but I thought it was a really interesting trip. You know, the giants gave a million dollars for hurricane relief, um, last fall and a share of that 400,000 went to AmeriCares, which is this Connecticut based, um, health oriented, um, organization. So they basically, one of the big things they do is in areas um, that have been affected by poverty or disaster in particular, um, they arrange access to healthcare, medicines, make deliveries so that people can, um, you know, get the kind of healthcare that they need. Um, so the players went to a couple different clinics. One was like a, a free clinic that was started in the community. Others were clinics that had been helped by AmeriCares in the aftermath of the storm. They went to an elementary school and they visited with the football team um, and they gave them a donation. So it was just, you know, there's people across the island, you know, that are still without power. A lot of the groups we met with are still without power, which is unbelievable. There's thousands without power. Yeah. Um, And, you know, one woman we met with that her story really seemed to resonate with the players and everybody in the room. And that, you know, she said she might not get power back until January. She's a diabetic. They taught her how to bury her insulin so that, you know, she can keep it colder for 28 days. So just a really stark reality of how some people their living conditions are right now, even eight months after the storm. And seeing the players go from place to place in parts of the interior that are not well trafficked, right? You know, they don't get visitors on more than one occasion. People said privately off to the side to me, like, I can't believe they came here because we never get anybody. Everyone goes to San Juan or Ponce or like, you know, the city areas on the beaches and no one ever comes here into the interior. And so I just, it was, you could really see the impact they were making and the football team they visited actually changed their mascot to the giants um, because of the visit and the donation to replace their equipment, which really brought a lot of people to tears, including the director of the team. So that was a really nice moment right before they left. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Now, earlier this month, you did a story on chargers head coach and former bills interim head coach, Anthony Lynn graduating college. I really liked Lynn when he was in Buffalo and obviously you got to know him. You're covering the jets. Tell us a little bit about that story. Yeah, he's a, he's a really smart guy. You're right. I, I, he was the running backs coach for the jets. And so it's been really neat to see his ascension through the coaching ranks. Um, and you know, he's just a, a, a really wonderful person to deal with, um, whether you're a player or a media member or front office. Um, and you know, this story was pretty remarkable for me. I mean, he kept it a secret. Barely anyone knew that he was going back to school and, you know, he had left Texas tech, uh, with a few credits left when he first entered the NFL as a player, the degree plan changed. And then he kind of fell into this, you know, 
rut that a lot of people I think do, you know, you have a job, you don't really need the degree, right. you know, the timing isn't right. And so that's why I thought his story resonated with so many people because he kept making excuses. And finally he said, I'm not making any excuses. I'm committing to it. I'm going to do it in 2017, which happened to be the year he got his first head coaching job in the NFL, but he was undeterred. He had made that decision. He was committed to it and he found time. He basically used all of his free time in the off season to study. So he would, you know, when they had five weeks between mini camp and the start of training camp, he worked ahead on fall classes. And so, you know, if there was an extra day on the bye week when they had off, you know, he would study, um, you know, he would spend hours at Starbucks so much so that he had a switch from drinking lattes to cappuccinos because they had slightly less calories, which I actually <laughs> didn't know, but I, if he said it, it must be true. So, um, but I, you know, and I thought one of the things that came out of our conversations was just how he talked about when he was a player, he had some injuries. He was facing the end of his career and he started an off field business, a construction business. He ended up playing four more years, including both Super Bowls with the Broncos. But he said once he had off the field, he felt he was putting less pressure on himself on the field and he felt like it made him a better player. And I think him saying that and the fact that he went back and got his degree as an, and it can be an example to his players. I think it's a strong message from a head coach to send because it's definitely counterculture right now. You know, old school NFL, you most of the time here, you know, we have to be singularly focused. You can't have interest outside. It's a distraction. And yeah, I think that's beginning to change a little bit. And I think the NFL and the NFL PA have more programs than ever for guys off the field. However, I still think there's this sense that, it, you know, the guys who are singularly focused um, are, you know, the most valuable to a team. And I think for a head coach to say, I want my guys to have other interests. I, I think it, and it could also make them better players. I think that was a really strong message. Sure. Now circling back to the guy, you know, who brought him up those culture ranks one more time, Rex Ryan, you covered him in New York. So you're familiar with him more than most. Why do you think, and I'm a Buffalo guy. So I got to ask you this. Why do you think he didn't work out in Buffalo? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's a good question. I, I went up there and I did a big story when he first started there and, you know, I felt like he was, he was in a good place. He was excited for the future. The end of the Jets to Jets tenure had been a little bumpy in New York. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he, there were a few years in there where I thought, you know, he did a really good coaching job with little talent. And when they went to the AFC championship game, he was so hands-on with the defense. And I just felt like as a defensive mind, there were some things he was doing that were really impressive, you know, especially when they beat the Patriots in the divisional round to go to the championship game. So all of those things I had seen firsthand um, and I wasn't around every day in Buffalo. I think, you know, one thing that seems to be the case is that I think he kind of got caught between this and it started happening in New York how involved am I with the defense on a daily basis? Um, and I think for him, that was his strength. I think he should have stuck with that rather than the, I'm going to sit in the head coach chair and be the overseer. There's a bunch of different ways to be a head coach and both kinds work. But for him, I think he needed to be involved with the defense every day. He needed to stay involved with the minutia. And I don't, I think by the time he got to Buffalo, he'd sort of transitioned out of that. Um, you know, and then when he brought his brother in and, and he was just kind of, he wasn't the same kind of head coach that he had been in New York. And I think ever since he made that shift, I think the results weren't there. A side note, and you mentioned it, you did a story, you had beers and wings with Rex in Buffalo. Is that one of the more fun stories that you did? That was cool. It was fun. And, you know, looking back, right, things didn't work out there. So there was a lot of optimism in the story that sort of went uncashed. But that really was a great day. I mean, as you know, as I said, I, I covered him in New York. He was wonderful to deal with for the media. You know, he's an engaging personality. He's fun to be around. Right. Um, so it was cool to go to the Big Tree Inn. You know, we sat down with with him, Jim Kelly and Thurman Thomas. Yep, yep. And it was a really fun afternoon. You know, like it was just beer was flowing, the wings were flowing. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I just, everyone was in a really good mood and, you know, it really, that was a day that you really felt the spirit of Buffalo too, which I love. I always enjoy coming to Buffalo. Um, there were fans there, um, at, at the big tree Inn, and, and the owners and everyone makes you feel so welcome there. And so, um, while it didn't work out for Rex, I think doing that story made me appreciate even more sort of, um, how special Buffalo is as a sports town. I got a couple more questions for you, then we'll start to wrap this up. 
I'm sure Peter King's one, so we're not even going to count him. But who else would be, would you consider being the most, uh, biggest influence on your writing career? Yeah, I mean, you're right. Peter has been a huge influence. We already talked about him. Mm -hmm. Um, I think two of the others I named, you know, Mike Garofolo and my uh, editor at the Star Ledger, Drew Van Esselstyn, both of them really, like I said, stood on the table uh, for me to cover the NFL. And, um, you know, Mike was such a great mentor in that he told me everything that was going on. You know, he involved me in everything. Um, we, We developed such a great rapport where we were, you know, helping each other and finding out information together. And it's, it was a really nice feeling of like being part of of a team because you are both invested in the same thing. You work for the same outlet. You're either going to win on stories that day or you're going to lose. And he showed me how to cover a beat. He showed me how to cover the NFL. You know, he would do these fantastic, you know, day after film reviews. Um, and he showed me how he did them and he introduced me to scouts. He introduced me to agents. Um, you know, he had, a, we all had Blackberries in that day and he was always on his Blackberry, like emailing someone for information. And so that was just one, I, I'm like really grateful that I started the Star Ledger because there were so many people like Mike on staff. Um, but because I worked so closely with him, he was probably the most impactful. This is a crappy topic that I really didn't want to have to ask, but it's out there now. So we do. What's your thoughts on this ongoing NFL national anthem saga? Yeah. You know, I, I was surprised at the policy change that was made. Um, You know, I felt like the reason that players began demonstrating for the anthem was it was a way to be seen and to get their, you know, attention to the things they were talking about, which was police brutality and certain social justice causes, criminal, criminal justice reform. And the reason they, you know, demonstrated during the anthem was because it was, you know, a time when they would be highly visible and Colin Kaepernick had talked it over with Nate Boyer, the former Green Beret and come up with a kneeling way to do it. And so, you know, players started it to be heard. Right. And I think over the last year, we, we saw less and less players, you know, demonstrating during the anthem. You know, I felt like once that that way of demonstrating becomes less impactful players move on to other things. And you are already seeing that, right? I mean, there's this social justice platform that, you know, um, was being forged between the players and the NFL. And there are, you know, a lot of other ways in which players are becoming increasingly involved to combat some of these issues, you know, going to city halls and meeting with law enforcement officials in cities all across the U S So I think there was a shift away from using the anthem as that kind of platform to other things. And so that's why I didn't really understand the need to create this kind of policy, because to me, you know, the policy had a loophole. The players, you know, were able to demonstrate without, um, you know, without being in violation of any rule. And now the owners are, okay, well, we, now we need to fix that and close that. But I don't like the way it is now. It's basically saying, if you're going to demonstrate, stay in the locker room out of view. And I I don't know how anyone thought the players would respond well to it. And I think the biggest thing that I think the owners missed the mark on here is that the players did this all along to be heard. And now here you are passing a policy that really kind of puts the players in a box, not soliciting their input. And I don't know how anyone thought that that would go over well. Um, and so I think, you know, it's going to continue to be some, a topic of conversation now, whereas if it had just been let lie, I think players were already shifting to other, other um, means of doing things. Amen. Let me ask you this about social media. I want to know your thoughts on it. And let me preface it by saying this. I understand that it's, you know, instant information and, and you know, you're a sports writer, you need it. But if all things were equal, you know, and no one could have social media or everyone has it, do you like this age of social media? Are you more old school when it comes to stuff like that? I see that it's necessary these days. Sure. um, And it's a way to reach readers. It's a way to interact directly with people. And we were communicating by Twitter direct message, right? So it's a great way to connect people. But so many days it's so frustrating you know so many days the comments that you get on twitter um trolling the, the trolling right and I, you know there's just I, I find myself wanting to use it less and less and 
I don't, if it wasn't necessary for my job, I, I would not be on Twitter, but it is necessary for a job. And it just becomes this open forum for people to say whatever they want to you. And I don't, it, it, it feels like that divides us more because, you know, the, the sampling of mean comments you're getting in your mentions aren't necessarily representative of the entire, you know, readership or entire population, but you're seeing a, a percentage of them and then you're becoming discouraged at the way people are. And, and I just think it's sort of, I think it's reinforcing divisions. I think if social media was created to keep people closer to each other, I think just as much it's doing the opposite and dividing people. And that is sort of, is, is difficult to participate in. What's the best advice you would give to someone who's looking to become a journalist? The best advice I would give them is to just have an open mind and be totally flexible because the business has changed so much. The demands of the job, what the job looks like, you know, I don't know what it will be in five to 10 years. Um, and I think also the ability to, to apply that on a day-to-day basis, you know, the story changes and you have to, in a mo- on a moment's notice, you know, pursue a different angle. Or if you're in a locker room and you see something developing, you just have to react. So just you, you have to be flexible above all else. It's not a kind of job where you go in in the morning and you know exactly the tasks you need to check off. Um, and it's not a job where you always know the things you need to do to be successful either. A lot of it is, you know, you can work as hard as you can, but there's going to be a portion of it that still falls to chance. So you just have to be flexible and be willing to just kind of adjust as, as things go along. Things have really changed. You know what I mean? You know, back in the day, sports writers would write and that's what they did. But nowadays you want to be a sports writer. You better be able to do radio. You better be able to jump on podcasts like you are now, do television, things like that. It seems like, you know, to be a sports journalist and especially in today's age, you need to be far more well-rounded than ever before. It's so true. You have to be, you you named all the things, podcasts, video, social media, writing, reporting. You have to be able to check a number of boxes. Um, And, you know, it it is interesting. I I, I guess I entered about 11 years ago into this as a a career. Um, And, you know, I've always been in this industry when things have been uncertain. Like I think a year after I got to the ledger, there started to be furloughs and then there were buyouts and then right. there were layoffs and no more job security pledge. So I've seen all the uncertainty of this kind of shift from the print product to the online product. But I think even still, that was how it was when I entered. And here we are 11 years later and a lot of it isn't figured out. So, you know, it's always evolving. No one exactly knows what things will look like in five years. And, and that fits into being flexible. Just like with every guest, I like to ev- end every interview with a little mini lightning round. I'm just going to ask you a handful of random questions and whatever pops in your mind. Just let me know. You're not, not too much thinking required. All right. All right. Favorite athlete that you've covered. Favorite athlete that I've covered. Wow. Why am I, I mean, it's really hard to pick one. Um, <laughs> um, um, I should probably have a ready-made answer here, shouldn't I? <laughs> now I'm being like Richard Deitch. <laughs> yes, you are. Um, you know, I, I'm going to say uh, Stevie Brown, the former Giants safety, he let me watch his ACL surgery. And I thought that was very educational for me, for our audience. And, um, and he was so open with me and, um, I appreciate him so much for that. So I I would say that he's high on my list. That's another story for another time. I want to know more about that. I'm going to (laughs) ask you that the next time we talk. (laughs) Sounds good. (laughs) Favorite non-sports related activity to do? Walk in Central Park. Nice. Favorite city to visit? Chicago. I have family there. Do you have a favorite sports movie? You know, I do not because I have seen almost no movies. So I get laughed at by everyone in the business <laughs> for this. I never get any references. So I don't, I can't even think of a single sports movie that I've watched. What about music? Do you got a favorite band that you like listening to? Um, my favorite artist is probably Beyonce. If Twitter sent you a note and said, Jenny, you're only allowed to follow one person on Twitter and one person only. Who would it be and why? 
I have to go with my current boss, Peter King. He's still my boss for a few more days. All right. Fair enough. Last question here. You could have three dinner guests from any era, past or present, dead or alive, doesn't matter who you got. This is always a tough question. I'm, I'm going to go with three people that are still alive today and three women. I would love to be at a table with these empowering females. My mom, Hillary Clinton, and Beyonce. Very nice. All right, Jenny, I can't thank you enough for your time. You're one of the best in the business, and it was a big thrill for me to be able to have you on the podcast. Thanks for your time. I really appreciate it. No, these were great questions. I had a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. All right, that's a wrap for this episode. Big thank you again to Jenny Frentis from Sports Illustrated and the MMQB. What an awesome guest she is. So talented, so personable. Love talking to her. Coming up on Thursday's show, I'll be joined by ESPN.com's Buffalo Bills reporter, Mike Rodak. If you haven't already, please go to iTunes or Apple Podcasts, whatever the hell it's called now, and subscribe to this podcast. It's easy and it's completely free. And future episodes will get sent directly to your phone or computer. You don't have to mess around looking for it. It'll automatically get sent to you. So go and do that. You can also follow me on Twitter at Tweets. Enjoy the week, everybody. Enjoy that nice spring weather. Unless you live in Florida where it's raining every day. Have a good week. Talk to you guys again on Thursday. Peace out. Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G. Because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters. The more your network matters. The more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters. It's us pushing us. It's Verizon versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from RootMetric's second half 2020 U.S. report of three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not an endorsement.